Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? This week it's not just me and Baz, we've got a special guest on, a recurring one indeed. Uh, we have the delightful <laughs> Dr Mitch, how are you doing Paul? Alright, great thanks Matt Gaz, and how are you? Yeah, I'm living the dream and Baz you're there as well right? Yeah, yeah, we've got the old Smart Party back together. We haven't we haven't had all three of us on a cast since the, the very early days of this podcast and we have spoken to each other in between, it's not like you know we only get together when there's a full solar eclipse. But it's really nice to have everybody back on tape again. Ask your parents if you don't know what tape is. <laughs> so, um, it seems apposite that we should talk about urban fantasy this week. Cause, um, well, let, let's, get it, let's get the big pitch out of the way, Mitch. Oh, that's a bit of a rhyme there. Um, you've got a Kickstarter out at the minute called Liminal, which is... Am I right in saying it's urban fantasy? Would you class it as that genre? I would. I mean, I described it in the Kickstarter page as... You know, modern day fantasy in you know modern day Britain and actually in Northern Ireland there's some of that as well using local folklore local legends and also lots of pop culture fantasy pop culture supernatural things such as vampires and werewolves to build a setting around and yeah that's the genesis of what urban fantasy is usually in urban fantasy you've got the big bad city where lots of grim things are going on you know things tie in with sort of city factions and city politics this is more british and more nationwide since a lot of urban fantasy is american not all but a lot of it so there's two slight differences one is it's more national and partially rural as well as urban and the other is that it's british Okay, so to, to step outside of Britain for a little bit, just the most recent pop culture reference I can think of, is American Gods urban fantasy then? Is that the kind of thing we're talking? Or is that too high level? Is it more kind of like low level and sort of like, I don't know, hard-boiled detective and that kind of sort of dirty street stuff? Or or do gods walk the streets? I would personally classify American Gods as urban fantasy. And I suppose in terms of things currently on the television, there's Lucifer. Going back a few years, there's things like Buffy and Angel. Uh, there's, I guess, Supernatural is still going, but I stopped after five seasons. That's when it finished that series. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I didn't miss any. <laughs> yeah, I turned off to start watching True Detective season two. That turned out to be a bad idea. Yeah, I, I did the first. I think I did the first two episodes of that. I regret the second. <laughs> what else is out there for urban fantasy, Mitch? I've read a, I've read a couple of books which I'm I'm reliably informed might be. There's the Rivers of London chappie, uh, Ben. What's his face? Uh, yeah, Ben Aranovich. Yes. Aranovich. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and when I and I turned around, they need written about another twenty of them. I think there's millions by now. About six, I think. But... <laughs> no. So with Ben Aranovich's Rivers of London is definitely London-based urban fantasy. A lot of Neil Gaiman stuff is urban fantasy. Going for the American, sort of going moving outside Britain, going to America. Okay, some of Neil Gaiman stuff's American as well. There's things like the Dresden Files series. There's Emma Ball's War for the Oaks. That was possibly one of the very first urban fantasy ones. I'd also count some of Harry Connolly's stuff in that genre, though that's again more rural than urban. And definitely tinged with horror. Hmm. Okay, and is it, is it um, like sort of what we're going for here? Is it modern day? Because there's things like um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which 
which seems to fit the sort of idea of this fantastical, whimsical kind of world that interacts with reality. Um, but that's obviously set in a more period sort of time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's almost its own genre that it's made. And I don't think too many people have followed that. I mean, I guess you could call it historical fantasy, but it's a relatively recent historical time, which makes it different to that. So from a role-playing point of view, what's what's kind of like attracted you to making a game about this? Is there is there nothing out there at the minute that kind of like captures what you wanted to do, or is it just something that you had a Jones for and you thought, I'm, I'm going to make this because it's not there at the minute? I did have a Jones for it. I mean, there were the two aspects. Firstly, the whole idea of working you know, with local myths, myths and legends, not tying it to one city, which is a mm. big thing in a lot of urban fantasy. And the other thing is, well, frankly, doing something British. <laughs> and um, did you think that the Britain's kind of quite a rich uh, seam of untapped gameable items then? Because there are quite a lot of folklore across Europe as well, obviously. But um, in Britain, there seems to be quite a lot of myths and folklore that perhaps an American audience haven't aren't aware of. Perhaps I think that perhaps all of us in our home cities and towns and counties probably know quite a lot of stuff like I know about Pendle Witches or things like that that um, is perhaps opaque to people outside of this um, septed isle. Oh, hell yeah, there's... I mean, there's loads of stuff. You know, every local town, you're going to have, you know, ghost stories. You're going to have stories of local witches. You're going to have some really odd myths. And another thing that's worth thinking about is history. You know, go to your average older village. The church is going to be centuries old. Hmm. And of course, this isn't unique to Britain. You know, it's true across Europe. It's true in many countries of the world. But that is definitely something I wanted to use. Okay, so so how does how does Liminal bring that together? I'm assuming it does. How does it bring together like the myths of of Cornwall and the uh, the urban myths of Newcastle? Um, is is there what what's the what's the frame that you hang this upon, Mitch? Okay, so the frame is there's something in the setting called the hidden. The world where there are, you know, magicians and fae and vampires, werewolves, ghosts, and so on. Most people don't know about those. Some do. Some are sort of half a part of that world, partially a part of the mortal world. And those people in the game are called limons. Gosh, it's the same as the title. That's a coincidence, isn't it? <laughs> that was lucky. <laughs> well, you did. You did. In fairness, the title is fairly new to this project. I know that much. <laughs> the liminals, you know, don't quite fit in to ordinary society. They're certainly not a part of supernatural society. On the other hand, they're in between, and they're also trying to do something good along the way. You know, trying to protect people when there's threats. They're really the only people who can do that. And in terms of tying myths together from different areas, you know, there are in this game various factions, if you like, that are certainly national in their agendas. So, to give one example, the werewolves, I mean, the werewolves are a lot of rural areas. There's, you know, a werewolf gang that sort of controls some aspects of that. But there's also a group called the, well, the Jaeger family who are claiming to be werewolf nobility, and all of the gangs should swear allegiance to them. And other factions have similar nationwide takes. Yeah, the vampires are trying to control the monarchy. 
<laughs> yeah, they're, they're centuries out of date in the sense of thinking of where the power lies. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, they're quite old, you know, they would be. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of vampires just kind of being a bit out of touch, really, because they're so long-lived. Uh, it's, it's bad enough talking to my mum. If you imagine someone who's a few hundred years older than that trying to like get to grips with Snapchat, I mean, <laughs> so it, it feels like um, that games. I mean, it feels like something that might appeal to young adults as well. I don't know how you feel about that because there seems to be um, a swathe of young adult novels and then TV adaptations and that sort of thing at the minute, uh, and it revolves around um, there's the world's kind of as it is, and then there's some people with special powers or weirdness going on and then there's those that like lie in between or are the undiscovered heroes almost at first and then sort of trying to find the place in the world um, do you think that's a fair sort of analogy that you, you, it kind of finds like, feels like to me anyway it would appear particularly to sort of like teenage years and stuff like that in that kind of you're a bit more special than normal people and you're the one who's going to save the world from all these weird things going on does that, does that ring any bells with you or is that just a happy coincidence I think, I mean, in terms, there are some very good young adults, sort of urban fantasy ones. Some got to get that market. <clears throat> and as you've said, this whole idea, you come into powers, you're something special, but your powers are awakening somehow, or you realise what you are. Yeah, there's a huge analogy for adolescence there. Mm. And you don't want to ignore that. You don't have to, well, you don't have to play with that. But yeah, that is one area. Sure. So do you think um, this game's got uh, echoes of others? So I think we mentioned uh, offline briefly before we started uh, this this chat about um, World of Darkness, for example, and that that had a, like a secret uh, underworld, if you know what I mean, and that kind of stuff. Do you think that's um, a thing that's never going to go away in role playing? That there's a kind of there's an attraction of playing in the current day, but with the fantastical elements as well. I think that's a long-term sort of popular genre, you know, is the modern day with weird stuff. And, of course, it's not just urban fantasy that does that. I mean, look at an awful lot of horror games. Look at how good and popular, for example, Delta Green is. Hmm. You know, that's, that is that, that, that is the modern world plus weird stuff. Well, that's true, actually. Yeah, I haven't thought of it like that. I mean, I'm not saying Delta Green is an urban fantasy game, but I don't think urban fantasy is the only thing that does that modern world combined with either a supernatural element or I don't know, some weird alien element. That's another thing that could come mm. into science fiction. And I was supposed to carry on, so I'm just rattling along here. <laughs> in terms of other games that have done similar things, I mean, there's a couple of Powered by the Apocalypse type games which do this. There's Urban Shadows, which is very much you know, focused on build your city, it's communal world building there, build your city, play with the supernatural politics of your city which is a different emphasis to Seminole and I suppose the classic big first urban fantasy things would have been the World of Darkness games which very strongly play with that adolescence me metaphor I think mm. make it that people are playing what are normally seen to be monsters but, you know, it's the it's a stereotype of the internet, isn't it, that people played that and ended up playing superheroes with fans. Yeah. Which actually sounds quite cool, but it's also ignoring, you know, the politicking aspect of it and the horror aspects. I mean, other games out there, the Dresden Files has got the role-playing game attached to it. Uh, there's 
also Monster of the Week, powered by the Apocalypse World. And if you go back to the 90s, of course, Buffy and Angel both had games based on Yeah, so on that basis, Mitch, were you not made perhaps... What was your fear level like for launching a Kickstarter into what sounds like a crowded market for that that piece of the gaming pie already? I mean, at the time of recording, we're, what, a week into it? Maybe a little bit more, I think? And, and, I, and of course, by the time someone listens to this, the numbers will be well out of date. But it's fair to say you've, you've smashed your goals. Um, I'd have been terrified launching a game into that crowded marketplace. Were you in that in that spot as well? Yeah, I mean, I hoped we did have, despite games out there, something very unique, different in its emphases, different in the you know, presentation of the supernatural and the location. Because it's not a horror game in that sense, mm. like some so many of the others are. But, yeah, of course I was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah, the first day I launched the Kickstarter... That's a day lost because every five minutes I've got to click and see that it's how it's doing. <laughs> Just mashing refresh. <laughs> I mean, there was there was a game I was going to be playing on, online on Wednesday night and it was cancelled. But one of the players there joked, "But well, it's okay, Paul can go back to his business and refresh on the Kickstarter." <laughs> <laughs> But that, that, that's that's a real thing, though, isn't it? I mean, it, don't be coy. You know, there'll there'll be people listening to this who don't even know this Kickstarter exists, and hopefully, we'll get it out in time that they can go and check this out. Um, you know, what were you asking for? What have you got so far? What are the stretch goals looking like? If I'm going to go and shill, which I'm, I'm actually very grateful for you to give me this opportunity on the <laughs> not, not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> the five minute advert spot starts now, listeners. So if you want to skip ahead five minutes, we... <laughs> but. No, in all seriousness, you know, I thought we did have something unique. I was really terrified and thrilled. Now I'm overwhelmed with, well, how popular it's been, how well the things I've put out there have been received. You know, and there's all sorts of things that help there. The art helps. In terms of that, we've got the core game, which is detailing the setting, detailing, of course, the rules, giving some GM tools to deal with everything. And then, in terms of supplements coming out, we've got actually some really good authors involved. So, Neil Gow, who's run a lot of urban fantasy things at conventions, he's doing, well, actually, one book that's already funded on London, and another one that's, last time I looked, was £500 off funding, called Nova Castria. And that's something he's been playing with for a long time, wanting to bring out. It's really nice that he wants to do it with the, with this setting. Of course, he's got a load of ideas and a load of things which tie into the material that I've got. For example, the Order of St. Beat, which is a church order, both fighting the supernatural and pushing it up. They're based in Durham, you know, with a presence in the area he's covering. And other stretch goals, we've got Becky Anderson, who's very much, very well read actually on werewolves, She's done a lot of work there a lot of research there, including developing a game of her own on werewolves, and I managed to get her to do a stretch goal which is already funded then we've got a general stretch goal presenting more case notes, which is what we're calling the short scenarios setting, or I'm sorry the game line, then coming on to that, we've got a that's various authors. Then we've got Newport doing a longer scenario. Then we've got other things going into detail on the setting. 
So we've got Paul Madowski writing about magicians. Like I said, £12,000 what yet funded was Neil Gower's Novocastria. Then coming in, we've got other material focusing on vampires. Cool. So it sounds like you've managed to get, as well as um, sort of detailing a bit of British uh, fancy and the the kind of ideas and myths and legends and stuff around the country. You've also got like a, a gamut of British small press talent as well involved. So you've got like a whole host of different um, homegrown RPG talent involved. Yeah, I mean, once I knew this was taking off, this was something I really wanted to do. You know, I don't want it to be all about me. <laughs> but getting other people involved in the British thing is, I think it's a really good thing. You know, and again, Neil Gowder described us as sort of, yeah, it's the Justice League of UK games writers. <laughs> Which I guess makes me Batman. <laughs> in Tweed. Yeah, <laughs> could have been a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> so with the, uh, with the with the case notes that you've described, um, that, that that brings me back to to a perennial question that I ask as a punter of any game: um, What do you do as as a player character in the setting? What, what's the like the core activity? What, what will what will the default activity be for adventures or scenarios set within Liminal? The core thing is, you know, your crew solve problems deal with issues involving the intersection of the supernatural and modern world it could it could it could be it could be you know finding someone lost it could turn into a monster hunt and is there an element of sort of kitchen sink drama to it i'm sort of thinking of um maybe something like being human where you've got um you know a vampire a ghost and a werewolf but it, the story is more about them living in a flat together than it is about them being supernatural creatures or is it more bent towards the the supernatural element yes yeah, so there's a it's, it's it's more on the adventuring side, but there is an element of that there, in the sense that the crew itself is a character. And the crew, as well as the player characters, you know, they've all got individual goals. And these goals could be something softer, like, you know, getting my... I don't think getting my housemate to do the washing up is necessarily a great goal for the game. <laughs> yeah, it's too much to ask. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's a fantasy game. It's not the impossible, right? <laughs> but there is this element where the crew are your family. And again, the crew does have a sheet of its own. Gotcha. Um, and is this sort of... Um, how would the crew get fame or glory? Is there kind of like an underground... Like the Royal Metal Society in itself, in terms of like if a group becomes particularly successful, and that may then lead to supernatural creatures targeting them or them becoming involved in more drama or something like that. Is there a level of fame for a crew itself, or, or do they always stay like in a little humble, just doing their thing for the good of the people? Is that the kind of idea about it? No, you can you can you can grow more powerful. Yeah, both the crew accruing more resources, of course, individual characters getting more powerful. But I think the thing you're asking about is. Yeah, with the big factions in the game, each of the, the the crew has, you know, I suppose a rating where it's representing their reputation with the factions. The mm. factions might never have heard of them. The factions might love them, or they might hate them. And another thing that I've put in as guidelines is any faction the crew's dealing with, they're going to have, you know, a face, the person they're dealing with. And I've put guidelines in for what happens if the crew decides to this is an NPC I don't like. I'm going to forcibly remove them from play, shall I say. <laughs> and, you know, do they get replaced? And it's a question of, well, if they're getting replaced by someone more powerful, 
that's a sign they're making a real impact on that faction. And if they're continuing to bomb them, yeah, that faction's going to go down now, possibly down completely. So they can certainly impact the world. Cool. So from from a writer point of view, uh, I know you produce quite a lot of other works, uh, and now you've got other people involved. Does it? I mean, it seems to me like it might seem easier for you and your your fellow writers if you've got the Kickstarter model where you've got stretch goals, so you don't have to necessarily write as much stuff to get some products out and get you know the reward for actually producing that that content. Does that does that make sense? Well, yeah, I think in in terms of the stretch goals, I mean, one thing that was clear is that I wasn't going to be writing all the stretch goals myself. You know, I would have burnt out doing that. So having, you know, me building the core and overseeing everything and other people doing the stretch goals is, you know, perfect for what I wanted to do. You know, and again, if I think, well, I thought, hey, there should be a book on werewolves in the setting. Let's get a werewolf expert or who's mm-hmm. been running lots of games set in London. And I know is going to do lots of research. Let's get them in. I like the idea that you've got a little black book, and at one point you thought, I need to look up a werewolf expert, so you leaf through to the W section. <laughs> you'd, you'd, you'd be amazed. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent stuff. So, Bas, have you got a clear idea about this urban fantasy idea, or does the concept. Uh, baffle you a little bit still, or you know, any clarifications that can be around that? I mean, I've got my own ideas about it. I just wondered from your point of view if you've got a. Um, I, I think I've got a tenuous grip on it, and um, and what I'm trying to get, I suppose, from this is uh, is the appeal. Now, Mitch, you said something I found really interesting. Though. You said it wasn't a horror game, and I guess by that you mean it's not really a horror genre. I'm I'm sort of struggling to reconcile. That a game that's got werewolves and vampires and monsters in it is not a horror game. Now, is that just the way that you're presenting it, or is that an urban fantasy thing? Have I got urban fantasy wrong? Because I think I, I, I kind of always put supernatural stuff like ghosts and hauntings into the horror category, to be honest. I, and I'm fairly sure that's not unusual. And I suppose fantasy for me like it will do for a lot of people, might mean elves and dwarves and misty mountains and exploration and dark lords. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm being pulled in, in two directions with that, and I, and I don't really know where urban fantasy sits. I think I maybe have got it wrong. So, so, so why isn't it a horror game? Can we start with that? Okay, so first of all, it's definitely horror adjacent. Right. But to turn it round on would you say that okay again going back to the 90s something we like, like buff it. something like buff we like it there is that a horror <laughs> yeah. show? uh no but then but then but buffy to be fair i didn't i didn't have buffy in urban fantasy until you said that either so again i I'm, I'm not the expert in this at all and i bow to your wisdom because i had buffy sometimes as a musical often as a comedy uh, teen romance uh, Buffy was a whole bunch of stuff I didn't realise that was urban fantasy I guess it's obvious that it is because it's set in a town so that's the urban bit done and it's fantastical <laughs> it's fantastical but that was still about you know demons and vampires and stuff like that and so it wasn't a horror because it wasn't scary 
But it wasn't fantasy because it didn't have anyone casting magic spells in the way that I recognise. I know that it did, but it didn't. So I'm confused. <laughs> I guess in that case, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily recognise it as fantasy. I see. Right. Okay. Of course, there's talk about different fantasy genres. Mm. I mean, the obvious genre that most people think of in terms of fantasy, and me included, is, well, high fantasy. Yeah, yeah. which would be yeah. Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, D&D. These are all high fantasy things. Mm-hmm. Then there's other things where you might call it low fantasy. You know, for example, I don't know, the Lankmar type stuff, or Blades in yeah, the Dark. Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's certainly still fantasy. But then there's right. other things like, you know, historical fantasy. Mm-hmm. But so this is, you know, ingredients, some fantasy ingredients mixed in with the modern world. Gotcha. No, that that does help make sense, yeah, because when I think about it, then, if I'm thinking about high fantasy, uh, you know, the idea of going into a dungeon and facing ghouls, well, that's a horror story, isn't it, if you want to take it that way. Facing liches and beholders and dragons, even, is a horrific thing to do. So, yeah, I think it's a... I think just getting my head round it, I, I've not I've not dismissed the genre, far from it. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a, a wonderful wife who who blogs and, and writes for the smart zine about young adult novels and I'm surrounded by urban fantasy. Um but <laughs> but uh, but I, I had that I had it down honestly, I had it down as, as more like the uh successors to first of all Anne Rice and then it would be the Twilight saga and then it would be your Kelly Kelly What's her face who does Bitten and that kind of stuff. And I had them down as like teen romances as much as anything else. Um, but with, with a, uh, not so much horror as an element of chill about it and a little bit of a frisson of danger. Um, and that's where I, that's where I had it pegged. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, supernatural romance is its own big genre. Oh, okay. I mean, it's not something that I'm particularly drawing upon for liminal or where my gaming is. I mean, I guess the one big game i can think of in that genre would be monster hearts yeah exactly that I, I guess i've i've conflated urban fantasy with with that almost entirely so is your, your game not got sex moves and stuff in it then are people not getting getting jiggy with the d20s no 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 one's allowed to have sex in my game excellent good news <laughs> how very british of you <laughs> or, or if we do we fade to black <laughs> You see, that's interesting because not the sex move bit. The the other bit you were saying before that, um, because when you were mentioning Urban Shadows and other Powered by the Apocalypse games, I was going to say Monster Hearts as an example of urban fantasy. But from what you're saying, actually, really, it's probably not that much. I think we could sort of slice definitions of genres here quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very fair to say that the paranormal romance type genre is a subset of urban okay. fantasy. Mm. Right, so yeah. it's it's much broader than I thought it would be, to be honest. And it, and it's kind of I'm get, what I'm getting from this is it's what it says on the tin. Um, you know, it's modern day fantastical elements, and within that, there's probably dozens of different sort of styles and tones that you could drape over your game. So is is liminal then a a genre toolkit that allows you to play all of those things in the game? Is it trying to be all things to all people, or is it? Is it something that's much more focused with its own setting and its own drives and its own its own things that it's trying to achieve? I'd guess it probably comes into... Yeah, I mean, it's its own setting. Where I'd fit it in would be broadly the... You know, hunting monsters, dealing with the nasty mm-hmm. things that monsters do type area 
of urban fantasy, which is, of course, horror adjacent. Mm. But the big difference between that and horror is probably the player characters and the monsters on a much more even footing. I see. Right, okay. So, system-wise, people are going to want to know about this. I do, certainly, because what's your system? And, and, and if you don't mind, if you can drill into anything, if you're prepared to do so at this stage, what have you got in the system that addresses the setting specifically that you just talked about? Okay, so system-wise, player characters are quite simply described. There's a bunch of skills. There's a goal sorry, a drive, and several traits describing their supernatural powers. Mm-hmm. There is, yeah, it's quite a short character description. In terms of the game, what characters are doing, roll 2d6, add your skill, look for a target number. One thing you can do is, if you fail, you can spend some of your will to succeed. Will also often powers some of the magic, magic stuff. But that's a finite resource. Once per session, you get that will by engaging the drive. But it's not like, say, for example, fate, where the aspects and fate points, there's a flow between them. You know, it's a one-off thing. In terms of how that's reinforcing genre, there's the drive. There's also how experience points are calculated, where it is a case of, you know, you get a sort of fit in an experience box, if you like, if you solve a solve a case, learn more about the supernatural world or you learn something more about someone else in the crew so there's the kissy kitchen sink aspect kitchen sink Ah, aspect coming into it the other side of the system is in terms of the the crew You you can also advance the crew the crew has a goal which gets experience if you're advancing it and of course there's the relationships between the crews factions in the setting so that anchors things in mm-hmm. the other thing I've gone into in terms of that there's if you like game setup where the idea is you know the GM comes up with a list of factions they involved in the game go around the table the players each pick a faction and decide well two factions one where they've got a positive rep one where they've got a negative rep um, once you've gone around the table and done that, once the players have picked, are the factions which are involved in the game. The other thing then that's set up at the table, everyone comes up with a hook, something weird and supernatural that's going to attract the attention of the crew, and then it's the GM's job to take these hooks and develop them into cases, and there's advice on doing that, and also on setting up characters you know, tied to hooks, tied to factions, tied to any particular drives or goals and that's the campaign set up then Okay, cool. Okay, that's really interesting people people are always seem to be quite desperate to know this sort of stuff, you know it's, um, you know, urban fantasy obviously will, will appeal or not appeal and it sounds like it's fairly broad but some people just want to know what shape dice it is and it's a deal breaker for them <laughs> so, Oh, absolutely, I mean that is the question I've had most of any And, and I'm not surprised, it, why do people do that though? I mean, I do it as a consumer. Do you do that too, Mitch? When you're when you're being a punter, when you look at games, do you scroll down to get to see whether it's a deep percentage system, and then scroll back up to see whether it's about something you like? I think I go. Oh, that's interesting. I'll have a look at that. Well, what's the system like? Yeah. You know, it's. 
I think the first big sell is do I like the concept? Right. I think system is more something that puts me off something rather than uh, necessarily okay. attracts yeah. me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a whole other thing to discuss. I don't know yeah. if you guys are similar or not there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm, don't know. I'll mull that one. I don't, I'm, I'm not... Well, if we start doing that, you're I'll not interested, are you, Bastard? Bollocks to that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I play all kinds of other games. I play Advanced Dungeons and Dragons 2, so there's that. That's two games, all right? <laughs> Shush. <laughs> yeah, I'm similar to you, Mitch, actually, in that I don't go necessarily hunting for a system, but I will look at the system before I buy something, if you know what I mean. Because um, there's certain things that I, just, I know I just don't really get on with very well, uh, and because there's so many things out there, it's... Um, it's a matter of being a bit cheesy because you can be these days. There's so many games mm. are available. Yeah, but I mean, life's too short to spend time on thinking. Oh, that looks interesting, mate. You've got to override the system. It's, it's life's too short mm. to do that. Mm. Got other choices. So you've been quite a, a prolific writer, as I've uh, alluded to previously. With all, now your vast experience that you've got, I'll keep building you up. Um, what what do you think your um, your writers' guidelines are? If there was, because you, you're bringing some new people, in, no, well, not necessarily new people, but you've got a wide variety of other British talent that you're getting in on the Kickstarter for other folk that want to follow in your kind of footsteps, or maybe some of those of your other writers. What are kind of like your your RPG top tips for starting to write some stuff to get out get out there on Kickstarter or any other methods for that matter? Okay, so I mean, the, my first tip is to probably i'd say start small and build up thinking about what you really want to do i mean people who are into sort of the indie game area they'll start developing mini games people who are more trad i'd say maybe starting writing scenarios obsessive bits and putting those out there and build up build up a rep another thing i'd say is don't have to put things out yourself you know game companies do take pitches it's worth writing to them liked I mean again that's how I started out but in terms of general writing things especially if you're doing something releasing yourself your kickstarter project what you've got to do is get really passionately behind it do the best damn job you can put everything into it might be heartbreaking but you've got to try <laughs> I mean another thing I'll say is also make sure any project you do you're, you're challenging yourself you might think, oh, I'm 90% certain I'll do it, I could do that, but it's hard. That's a good project to take on. Mm-hmm. You know, don't be afraid. If you're taking on a project, you think, oh, that's easy, I know I can do that. You're just a hack, really, aren't you? <laughs> and, and in terms of uh, having to be robust, do you send your stuff out to other people for for review, basically, before you... Or, or like, how, how does that process work? Do you send it to friends and family or do you have a set of play testers or like how do you make sure that what you're writing makes sense to other people and that sort of thing okay you've absolutely got to be robust in play testing wherever possible there might be practical concerns that you know make that harder or make that take more time like but what you've got to do is firstly if you're writing something you know play test it yourself make sure it runs with you doing it for other people the other thing is make sure someone else can do it just looking at your writing. You know, you need someone who's not to be able to run the And both of those stages are important. Another thing is, you know, listen to feedback. Listen to feedback from people who've read it. Listen to feedback from people who, especially, 
who run it or tried to run it. I'm not saying you have to take notice. No, no, I do say you have to take notice of everything they say. I'm saying you don't necessarily have to do something they say. Some people have got you know, preconceived ideas. Or you might get two pieces of feedback which contradict each other, in which case you might as well do what you like. But if someone say, but if you've sent it out to several playtests and they've said, this all said, this specific map mechanic is broken, then it's broken. Sorry, but that's something you need to fix. I mean, the last thing I'll say on that is as well, with playtesters, they are doing you a massive favour. They are bringing out a game that's not polished. It's probably just a rough text. And you should be, if I say you should be grateful for that favour, yeah, they're doing it because they're enthusiastic about what you're doing. But you certainly need to acknowledge that. Certainly, mm. if ever possible, you ought to at least you know, give them a copy of the game. Yeah, they've deserved it. They've earned it. Yeah, I quite agree. I just, I just had um, a little montage there of you speaking when you mentioned that like you might get feedback off many groups saying your math mechanics are broken. And as a maths professor, I could just see like a dark little cottage with you sat crying as... Uh, <laughs> Lots of feedback is coming in that your maths is wrong. <laughs> you, you, you questioned your whole life. Well, it's it's sad, isn't it? If you if you if you preserve a new game and ten people have written back to you, or maybe or even two people have written back to you saying core mechanic is horrible, it just doesn't work. That's a sad thing. But <laughs> better to know that and be able to fix it, and be able to do something else, than to release a game and having you know twenty people in public saying that in reviews. <laughs> and that's just from the ego point of view I'm not even talking about doing a good product point of view I mean again while I'm raving about playtesting that's a good part of what I feel like I'm paying for when I buy an RPG you know I know mm. I want to know something is polished it's been developed it's been playtested well, that's interesting because I, I, I sometimes feel with some things that I've got that um, that it hasn't been and it's difficult to tell uh, before you've got a game whether it has been or it hasn't. And um, I think Kickstarter uh, sometimes does a good job of of making it making it clear because they'll often put up a draft of the rules almost as soon as you pledge, so that you have a chance to to see it, it take shape. And and some games like Blades in the Dark have had a very open playtest uh, procedure. But there there are. I mean, you know, the friendly local game stores bargain bins are absolutely chocker with games that that clearly haven't been haven't been run by their own designers. Which was your step one, wasn't it? Play the game yourself. Uh, uh, it clearly hasn't happened. I won't name any names, um, but 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 there's lots of those around. No, I mean, name, naming no names. I mean, I'm sure again you've had this feeling. You know, the RPG world would be a better place if more people did what we thought they should. <laughs> and you could take RPG out of that <laughs> sentence, and it still stands up. But I don't. <laughs> but no, I agree. Some some things are not as playtest as they should be, and that's a pity. Mm. Mm. It's also annoying yeah. if you force it; it doesn't work. Yeah, I suppose um, the other aspect that I wanted to sort of uh, question you on is your uh, your choice of artists, because I think. It's quite important for this kind of genre, particularly, to have uh, images that capture some kind of imagination and seem a little bit fantastical. More than say, I don't know, if I was bringing out an OSR product, I know that people understand what skeletons and orcs are, but if I'm producing something like this, then I want you know a 
like something that visually drew me in. Is that is that something you went for, or is it you know the the art is hugely important. And okay, yeah, I am used to working with Jason Becker, who's the artist for Blimp. But also, art in games is a big thing. It should illustrate what's going on. It should be of a style that works. And I suppose I'm being a bit of a politician and talking round your question, but to answer it properly, guys. You know, Jason's done a lot of fairy tale type things. And his sort of oil painting style that I've seen in other things he's done and in the works he's got on his websites. Yeah, that is spectacular. And that's absolutely brilliant for the game I want to do. You know, he's the perfect artist mm. for it. And yeah, choices of artist, whose style suits, who's good, is an important part of the design process. Yeah, I really like his uh, his five ring stuff and things like that. Is uh, uh, a very imaginative artist, if you know what I mean. So that like some of the stuff seems a little bit. Um, uh, again, I'm trying to politic now. I'm not using a word that might offend someone, but um, kind of wispy or ethereal, or do you know what I mean? So it's not like uh, a, a technical drawing where everything's like perfectly drawn out and you can like a life study. It's more kind of imaginative, I suppose, is the what I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. I thought with Jason we'd get a bit of a fairy tale vibe going with the mm. art that's probably what I was groping towards and yeah I think you, you what you've just said you know he's very suited to that and how do you feel in, I mean this is something that I've uh, I've been thinking about looking at Earth Dawn which is a, a game our listeners won't have heard me mention before but um... no tell me about it <laughs> <laughs> well we're back in the 90s again 1993 I was young so yes Earth Dawn um, that, that's got some great artists in it in terms of uh, Liz Downforth and uh, Jenny Arcelio and uh, Jeff Lobenstein I really liked uh, but it's chalk and cheese because looking through some of the books as I was recently there's also some like really bad artists or I think they're bad and I think that's one of the problems you've got with art is that it can be in the beholder whether you value the, the product or not so how do you feel about games that have got a mixture of styles rather than games that have picked an artist and kind of or maybe two artists and gone with a style and stuck with it so like for example to give you an example something i do like would be the one ring where it's mainly judge uh sorry john hodgson but there's also got like one or two other artists in who draw and paint like john hodgson does to a degree you know the the art's very similar so that appeals to me but how do you feel about that do you like a variety more or, or do you like a theme i prefer the unified art style i think actually the mm. one ring is a very good example you say it's several artists but there is a definite style to it you know started by John Hodgson usually when there's more than one sort of different type of thing going on hmm. I'll definitely have a preference one over the other I might even like one or love one and hate the other <laughs> and that's that's the way it is so personally I prefer the unified thing how do you feel about the art question, Baz? So did you actually care about that? Is that something that pushes your buttons, or um, it's the art thing is a bit of a weird one for me. Uh, Mitch is right; you're right. Art is really important in RPGs. I don't why I don't know why it is. Um, I, I agree that it is, but I don't know why it is because it's not something that ever comes out in play, right? It's it's something you read as the GM or as a player when you're having your your lonely bit of the hobby when you're flicking through your books and browsing the websites, websites and maybe putting together some handouts and stuff but actually during play when you've got people sat around the table or looking at their screens and playing on roll 20 or whatever that 
it hardly ever comes out. So it, it's doing something that that you don't see. So it's subtle stuff. But obviously it is important. Obviously it's getting you in the right mind frame as the GM. Otherwise you wouldn't have read the rest of the book. Mitch, when you said earlier, you know, you might be drawn to the concept of a game and you'll have a quick look to make sure that the system doesn't repel you from it. I think the same can be said of art. So, and it shouldn't be. Again, it shouldn't be. But it does. There, there'll be probably some very good games out there that I just can't get on with the look of them. And it just means I don't want to pick up the book and read it. And I may be missing out on some some gem. And then on the other end of things, there's things like Simbaroom, which is a beautiful book. And I will admire the art till the day I die. I absolutely love it. And it draws me into the book time and time again. I, I bounce off the text, unfortunately. I think there's a mismatch there. But it's but it's enough to have hooked people to play it, and then when they played it, I have I honestly believe that they found something really good in the system that keeps them going. So the art is like the gravy on the roast dinner; it, it pulls mm. everything together. For some people, it's the only thing worth having. But you know what? It's when you say what goes in a roast dinner, nobody talks about the gravy, do they? They talk about the the, the, <laughs> the roast chicken yeah, and, yeah, and the yeah. potatoes. So it's it's really weird that art has such a powerful impact on people, yet doesn't. You can't see it. If you walk into a convention and see 20 tables all playing role-playing games, you won't see any of the art. And you can't hear the art. And you can't smell the art. <laughs> so it's it's a weird kind of sensory thing that doesn't show up during the game. I don't know. It's, so if, if in that sense, it's it, but it's clearly worth more than, say, the wrapper is on a Mars bar. It's not just the thing that gets you there and then you discard it either. It really does live through the length of it. My personal preference is, is I like to mix it up a little bit in the book. Um... And I, I sometimes use that to aid me with my memory. I can remember sections of the original Dungeon Master's Guide depending on what cartoon was on the page. And I can remember where certain sections were with their chapter openers. And that, that was a real melting pot of lots of different things. Whereas there are other games like Blades in the Dark that has the same art style all the way through. I don't particularly care for it. Um, I don't dislike it, but it just it disappears for me. And, um, and then... If I'm looking for something in that book, I find it hard to find because I haven't got like a <laughs> a cool little image that draws me to it or like the colour plates in Earth Dawn, which were all very different. You know, yeah. um, Call of Cthulhu has had so many artists, it's ridiculous. And, and people have their favourites and they're not so favourites. But I kind, I kind of like that uh, it's almost impossible to like everything, isn't it? But um, I like, you know, having a great cover and a great, uh, you know, opener by a Tim Bradstreet picture might really stand out in a vampire book, but he won't do everything in it. So that's a, that's a long answer for you. I don't know. Art's important. I don't get why. <laughs> <laughs> and um, did you pick the cover of your book, Mitch? Because um, it's, it's obviously a lovely painting. Um, I'm just wondering what what does that say about the game that's underneath the cover. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I'll say, firstly, actually, I want to make it clear with Liminal, the image on the Kickstarter page is art that's in the book. It's not going to be the final cover. So that's something exciting to come. But it's a good image to present. You know, it it does show someone who's between these worlds. Mm. And of course, the cover is is the big pitch. It's what's drawing people in. And again, Talking about the Kickstarter, pictures on the Kickstarter are like a book cover. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy with how we're doing on the Kickstarter. I really don't think we'd be doing nearly as well if it wasn't for the you know, lovely bits of Jason Benker art we've got on the Kickstarter page. There's no way. Yeah, I agree. 
Yeah. So the smart party needs to hire an artist. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think definitely. <laughs> we'll get some portraits done of me and Baz in bed together like Ben and <laughs> Well, I'm thinking if I ever do a video call rather than a podcast, I need a makeup artist. <laughs> I need a paper bag. <laughs> <laughs> and one for every viewer, in case mine falls off. <laughs> So, so while we've got you here then, Mitch, I'm just wondering if there's any other games that are upcoming or that you've recently discovered that you're, that you're interested in or you found something particularly exciting? Well, one thing, I, one thing I did see, actually, just today, coming on Kickstarter, another British writer, it's not someone I know, was, well, second edition of Summerland, which is very interesting post-apocalyptic setting where everything has been taken over by forest. And I hope I'm not offending someone, anyone here by saying the first edition system was very, actually, pretty horrible. That hadn't been out to the playtesters, had it? <laughs> Whereas second edition is doing it with an established system, you know, the D6 system. Yeah. So I got pretty interested in that. And that's just something I just learned about today. My other mm. things that are coming out of you, so I've been doing some work on editing for new, new ports, and Monkey, which was kick-started last year, so this game of well, Chinese Chinese mythology based on the you know big monkey sequence and various beloved seventies sort of TV series as kids. That's that's coming out very soon. So that's something I'm quite excited about. Yeah, his monkey games have done really well, and for for gentlemen of certain age like ourselves, I'm sure we all remember when we were kids that monkey was the thing that was on TV, and it was it was actually a Japanese TV series of a sort of Chinese pseudo-Indian myth and if you go back and watch it now listeners it is pretty awful in terms of budget and sets and everything but I suppose that's part of its charm but certainly back in the day it was like magical as kids but the the first certainly the first edition of Monkey that needed did really well and I think did well with people who didn't watch that TV series which kind of astounded me because I thought that would be the main draw. Yeah I guess we're looking at it from our own perspective as you know British people of a certain age. Yeah of course and if someone says monkey to you you're thinking oh monkey magic so <laughs> I mean it's interesting as well the kids TV thing I mean yeah some awful lot of it looks naff now I mean I remember as a kid I really used to love Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> that's just waiting for the role playing treatment <laughs> I'm on it no, that's the one that's I'm waiting for the role playing treatment is clearly the 80 <laughs> yeah Maybe I, I don't know if we're going for stuff around that vintage. Uh, why isn't there a water margin RPG? Because that that and Monkey always got I got those mixed up. Mm. They were in the same sort of time. Yeah. And, uh, and the other thing I remember seeing at the same time, and this will never be an RPG, was Harold Lloyd. And there'll be a, an audience of one for that. But we all remember <laughs> like the black and white stuff. The BBC was so cheap back then, wasn't it? It was just buying in other people's castoffs. But um, but they they were part of everyone's childhood in the UK. They're, they're our international listener, because I think we've got one now over in Beverly Hills. We're really sorry about this. You have no idea what we're on about. Uh, you were probably watching something with the monkeys in it, whereas we were watching Monkey. So sorry about that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, a very good Japanese female actor who was playing a fourteen-year-old boy who was a priest, and very like stuff that just makes no sense now. <laughs> <laughs> but back then seemed to all work out perfectly. <laughs> we ought, we ought to get new on, by the way. I mean, it's, it's all 
without wanting to get too cliquey, I mean, you know, everybody that you've mentioned, I think, that's doing your stretch goals has either been on this podcast at one point or another, <laughs> two points or another, or is going to be at some point. Uh, and we need to get Newt on as well, because Newt does D101 games, um, and they produce an awful lot of really good stuff, and very much homegrown, really good British vibe as well, and, um, and c- quietly goes about his business of punting out stuff and making a living out of it, which for anyone involved in RPGs is the dream. <laughs> Absolutely. Well done, you. You know, you got it for you doing it all for us, mate. Taking one for the team. Yeah, well done, mate. Yeah, I only recently found out that he's given up his day job to just do. He's now officially an RPG producer. So yeah, well done, mate. And also, yeah, Neil would definitely to get on. What I'm, I'm trying to keep my powder dry because I'm going to segue into nice, musket nice. duty and honor. Do you like what I did? I'm very clever, mate. Yeah, so Neil Gow, um, one of your other writers, Mitch, he's he's working on the second edition of Duty and Honor, which is the kind of sharp slash hornbower, uh, that kind of Napoleonic era game. So that's that's one of the things that I know is uh, waiting in the wings at some point that's going to come out, which I'm really excited about. Absolutely. I mean, the first edition of that was great, and then he improved it further with, well, beat to course as the main. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what he does returning to it now. Um, other stuff, uh, Paul, that we we should talk to you about. I feel we should, and we haven't because we're probably taking it for granted. But I think our listeners need to know Seven Hills. That that's a Doctor Mitch production, right? Seven Hills, yeah. It's an accidental Doctor Mitch production, but it's a Doctor Mitch production. Well, aren't they all? But I mean, so, <laughs> Seven Hills is like you know, it's like you'd on a whim brought up a, a games convention relatively recently but it's got legs now hasn't it and i think people would be very annoyed if it wasn't there and and, and you know it's 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 carved out a place in the convention calendar for the year um how's it going you must be really proud of your little convention baby that's yeah, I'm, got I'm, all big I'm, on you yeah i'm really pleased i mean it's in year number five now wow wow <laughs> it's old enough to go to school <laughs> yeah was, which makes me feel old <laughs> and again it's like any convention I mean I remember way back there was all sorts of debate going oh should we have another convention at this time of year or not and then when talking to Graham we just did it we did it people came, people liked it it sort of rose into being on a bubble of goodwill and Gaz was a big part of that as well I should say oh thank you yeah not really and like any convention, it runs on this continuing goodwill and people coming up, running games, running good games. Yeah, it's a good variety of people there. Right? I think it's pretty interesting games this year. You know, I'm really looking forward to it. What about you, Gaz? Oh, no, I'm really... You know, I don't really want to go. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it, as always. It seems... Um, what, it's something about those Sheffield conventions, that it is, because Furnished, kind of like the big sister or big brother of, uh, of Seven Hills, is... Is similar in that the seem you do get a wide variety of games, and I've I've looked this time at the Seven Hills roster, and obviously I'm running out some Earth Dawn as of people have pressured me into, or I've painted myself into a corner with, depending on how you look at it. Um, but you know, there's there's typical stuff like there's some Fifth Edition D and D, and there's some Savage Worlds, and there's a bit of uh, sort of stiff of all British Explorer games. But then there's also a Monkey, which we've mentioned, and there's uh, some of the really freeform stuff with gemless games, and there's like just such a variety of stuff on that. I think kind of whatever you're into, you can find certainly uh, a handful of games that you'll be interested in. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's pretty good going for a small club. Of course, we even got Baz to Seven Hills once, didn't we? <laughs> yep. <laughs> it gets nosebleeds this far north. That's the problem. <laughs> it's got high altitude, isn't it, really? 
When when they open a pret, I'll come. I, I don't understand all this Greggs and Morrisons and all that malarkey. <laughs> yeah, I definitely recommend it. It's um, we've only got a couple of weeks to go, really. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure there's still space. So if you want to get yourself signed up, I'll put a link into the Seven Hills Convention in the show notes, so you can uh, come along and get your hands on some good gaming goodness. I, I believe you're going to run um, a game of Liminal as well, aren't you, Mitch? That's right. Yeah, that's yes. That's a Saturday afternoon there. Of course, there's four cool. spaces in the game, so I'm not sure I'll necessarily advertise it that way. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, first come, first serve, right? <laughs> Just got to run it again, mate. So I'm going to tell you. <laughs> well, I'd be interested to see what happens with your Earth Dawn. All your listeners will be there, demanding a game. <laughs> Both of them, yeah. uh, two characters each. <laughs> it might just be me on my own I'm really not sure about it but... I'd be happy just reading Earth Dawn for four hours I'm quiet I'll, I'll be alright one way either there well, it's an evening slot isn't it we just get you a beer and leave you in a corner that's it that's it that's all I need these days I'm a simple man simple pleasures and talking of simple pleasures I think we're about up that's that's roughly our hour Mitch so it's it's been a pleasure as always to have you on thanks for coming back on no it's been lovely being here and um, thanks for inviting me again and letting me shill my wares but also, yeah, having a nice chat about other things. Correct. No, thanks ever so much, Mitch. It is honestly, it's a pleasure, and we should we should do no, this more. It's a, ple- it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to chat with you again, Bass, as well. Cool. Listen, good luck with Liminal. That's Liminal. Check it out on Kickstarter. I think by the time this drops, uh, people will still have time to go and have a look uh, and see if they like what they if if they would like what they see. And yeah. I'm sure they will. And that's all it is. You know, if you, if you think you like if you like the look of it, go for it. Don't. Oh, don't be British! I demand you buy this game immediately. Put some money in the in the coffers because, uh, jokingly, I think if you get to a million quid, I'll write something for it. Oh no, actually, <laughs> that might stop people doing it. You have promised in Facebook, which is like doing it in public. It's as good as a legal contract, right? There's a stretch goal. <laughs> I, I like the wordplay that we've not gone subliminal; we've gone like full-on liminal, which is yes. Like, <laughs> it's just in your face. Go and buy it. <laughs> so yes, don't worry, don't worry, listeners. There'll be links in the show notes as well to the Kickstarter, so you can go and check it out for yourselves. Uh, but for this week, that's uh, goodbye from me. Uh, goodbye from me. Bye from me.